Today, we're going to continue our series on Theology 401. Just joking, this series is called The Ravished Heart of God. We're pressing into the revelation of God's heart, how He loves us and His burning desire for us and His, His ravished heart towards us, how He feels about us. That's, what, that's really the question we're answering these last number of weeks. It's really a journey as we're pressing into God's heart, just like we'd be journeying into, pioneering into some new land. And really, we're experiencing and we're encountering just how much God loves us. And we're answering the question, how does he feel about you? What moves the heart of God? What is his motive? Why? Why? You know, Clint asked that, answered that question a couple weeks ago. Why did he create? Why do you exist? Why did he die? What moves God's heart? See, see, theology 101, which I love. I love theology. I've almost, you know, in a sense, I've been just like, I've been like doing some textbook theology with you these last few weeks because I love it. I mean, it's just who God is. Theology is just a study of God. It's the, it's the queen of the sciences. I mean, there's just no greater thing than to study the God who made everything else, you know? You study physics, you're looking at God, you know? And so I love to look at the word of God, right? The scriptures, which he wrote through human beings. It's not a novel. It's not a fiction book. It's not a myth. This is the truth of God that he's made himself known in. Concrete, written word. Amen? So we turn to the word of God right now and to see who God is. And we believe, and this is what we're doing in this series, we're letting the heart of God be so unveiled to us that his heart impacts us and heals us and changes us our emotions, and causes us to love Him with His love. Amen? Not with our love, but with His love. Because it's impossible to love God with, without His love. It takes God to love God. And then it changes us to love people like He loves people. Not with our human effort, but with the love of God. And so we've seen that God's love is a holy love and a perfect love. We've seen what that is. We've seen that he's moved with compassion at the needs of his people, that his compassion reveals the will of God. We've seen that God's love is eternal because God is love and that he chooses to love. He chooses to love. Not that, he, not that his love is based upon our actions or our character, but on his character and his choice. And today I want to show you the desire of, in God's heart. I just want you to see the desire that burns in God's heart for you and for every person And you'll know why Kurt was crying and just couldn't even move on because that's what is gripping Kurt. It has nothing to do with Kurt's love. Perfect love drives out fear and causes us to love like God loves. There's a holy thing happening in Kurt because of what God's love is doing. So I'm kind of nervous about that uh, to go into this. But uh, it's awesome. And let me just say this. His emotions will heal your emotions. See, we have this lie. Don't worry, we're going to get into the Word. Uh, I don't know what it is, but we think God is Spock. We think like the pinnacle of, of, of being a human being is being like Spock. You know, all up in your head and everything. We, we think like God is some stoic Killjoy. And we have literally doctrinized it in the, bi- in the church. God feels. He's moved with compassion. I talked about it last week. 
And until we experience the holy love of God, that he is not like us, but we are to be holy as he is holy, his emotions will not change our emotions. It's why so many people either, either we're crippled in our emotions and we shut our emotions off and we try to be Spock, or we're controlled by our emotions rather than being led by the Spirit. You're all up and down, roller coaster ride Christianity. And usually the Spock thing is like, oh, emotions must be bad, so therefore, desires must be selfish, so therefore, we'll just go to the other ex- fleshly extreme, you know, and put Christianity in the Stoicism box. And it's not the Buddhist box where you'd feel nothing, you know. Even love is pain, so don't feel love. You know, this is like the Buddhist thing, and that's in, in infiltrated the church. We must encounter the holiness of God and let the revelation of his heart ruin us, heal us, but also ruin us. All right. Here we go. My goodness, Lord, help me. So turn with me to Exodus 32. I want to take you through a story in the Scriptures, and I want you and I want us to experience, I want us to encounter the desire of God's heart. I want to talk to you about something called the jealousy of God. And let His emotions heal our emotions. So, yes, Lord, do it, God. So in Exodus 32, you'll remember that the story is, Actually, you know what? Go, go, to, go to Exodus 20, actually. Forgive me, but... Exodus chapter 20 is the story of the Ten Commandments. You remember that the people of Israel were led out of Egypt. They were delivered by God, right? I mean, he, God whooped on the superpower of the world, Egypt, to deliver his people, Israel, out of bondage and bring them into the promised land and into a covenant with himself, amen? And he brings them out of Egypt... He brings them to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and literally the fire of God falls on this mountain. The fire of God. I mean, there there is thunder and lightning and fire and smoke on this mountain. And God shows up, and the very voice of God is heard declaring the Ten Commandments. And of course, the Ten Commandments aren't rules, as many of you know. They are covenant vows. Just like I would say, I do to my wife, and she would say, I do to you. These are mutual covenant vows. God promises to be faithful to his people. They are vowing, covenanting to be faithful to him in these Ten Commandments. And you guys know the Ten Commandments. You have no other gods. Don't make idols. You know, have the Sabbath. Love people. Don't kill people. We'll be nice and happy if you just are faithful to one another and to me. Right? Good way to live. And in in the Second Commandment, you'll see that God says, no idols. And look what he says In verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, these idols, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands and those who love me and keep my commandments. God, God says, I am a jealous God, what, is he, what does he mean by that? I'm a jealous God. And a lot of times, because we have uh, this Buddhist so- stoicism in the church, people go, oh, that's just like God trying to help us understand him in well, human emotions. That's just a human emotion, and God's just like using that. No, no, he has always been eternally God, a jealous God, right? It start, everything starts in the heart. 
But notice that he talks about the context of this is idolatry. Do you see that? It's very important. And you notice that he says that there is uh, uh, judgment on iniquity and yet mercy as well. It's very important. So then if you go to Exodus 32 and the story of Exodus 32, as many of you remember, is that the people of Israel on their honeymoon with God commit adultery. Days after they have vowed to be the faithful people of God, I have rescued you from Egypt to make you my special people, that you would be my covenant people, that through you I would show the world my glory. Now come into covenant with me and vow to me that you would have no other gods, that you would be faithful to me, that we'd have an exclusive covenant of oneness. And they said, Amen. They said, I do. They said, We shall have no other gods before you. And they made the covenant with blood. Days after that, they say to Aaron, Moses is missing. Hey, we don't know where this Moses guy is, but why don't you just make us a golden calf? And they make a god in the image of a cow because that's how they understood God. And they said, this is the god that has rescued you from Egypt. They mixed their concepts of God from their culture and their world with the god of the scriptures. And they prostituted themselves with this idol. They committed adultery. They broke the covenant. Can you imagine how it would feel on your honeymoon for your husband or your wife who has just made a vow to love you for the rest of your life in an exclusive lifelong covenant of oneness? Can you imagine how you would feel? How crushed, how betrayed. Oh, maybe angry? To have somebody commit adultery against you, and not just adultery, but on your very honeymoon. They're still at Mount Sinai, and they're already worshiping a golden calf, making God in their image, looking to this idol to be their provider. Yes, that's what they did in this culture. They believed the gods would bring them fertility, children, crops, money. And they were looking to another to be their provider, another to be their healer, another to be their success. And look at what God says to Moses. He says uh, in verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf, and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, Israel, that, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, for let me, Therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you, make of you a great nation. What's happened? They committed adultery and it is aroused in sight, in sight of God. Wrath. Like a fire has been kindled on the inside of him. He has been hurt. He has been wronged. He has been betrayed. Yes, God feels those things. The Bible says that he gets grieved over sin. 
He gets hurt. He's not an emotional basket case. But he has created humanity for relationship with himself. He is completely invested in creation. And with these people, Israel, he made a covenant and gave himself to them with promises. I'm going to give you this promised land as your inheritance. I'm going to be faithful to you. And they betrayed him. And it awakened inside of him fiery wrath. It's exactly what's going on here. Why? Why? Is it because God's just like pissed off all the time? Excuse me? Is it because God is like just easily angered? Like, you left the cabinet door open, you know? You didn't put the toothbrush back in the dish. Wrath! Is God easily angered? Is God capricious like some alcoholic dad that just flies off the handle because he's in a bad mood? Then notice what happens. It's so important you to see that these, both of these things are happening in the sa- at the same time. Then Moses, in verse 11, pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? You rescued them. They're your people, God. Moses is interceding. The word intercession literally means to stand in the gap. When, when, there's a, when there's a chasm or when the wall has been broken down, someone stands in the gap to protect an army from coming through that gap in the wall. And Moses stands in the gap in intercession and reminds God, you rescued your people. You made a covenant with your people. These are your people. He goes on, verse 12, Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? He's saying, God, you didn't rescue your people so you could kill them. You rescued them to bring them into your promised land for your very own glory. And he's reminding him of those things. Turn from your fierce wrath, he says, and relent from this harm to your people. He says to God, God, repent. That's what the word means. It literally means repent. The old school translations use the word repent, rightly so. God, repent of this harm. What does repentance mean? Change, change. God, just change from the... Change. Change what you're planning to do. Change. Does God repent? Does God relent? People ask me this question all the time. I thought the Bible says God does not repent. I am not a man that I, nor a son of man that I should repent, Numbers 23. Have I not said and will I not do? Have I not spoken and will I not make it good? The Bible says God doesn't repent. David doesn't repent. The Bible says God doesn't repent. Yet it says right here, it says multiple times in the scriptures that God repents, relents, changes. So which one is it? In Numbers 23, he's talking about the word that he spoke. If I say something, I will not change. If I make a promise to you, I am faithful to my promise. I am faithful to my covenant because I am faithful to my character. I cannot change. I am not a God that I change, says the Lord. I don't change. Why? Because his actions and his promises are based in his love. He chooses to love. He chooses to promise because he wants to. He wills it to be so. He doesn't 
change. So when he makes a promise to you, you can guarantee ain't no change going to happen with God. But he does repent. And there's a reason why. And so Moses asked God, repent of this harm to your people. Verse, 20, verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. I said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they inherit it forever. So the Lord repented. Verse 14. So the Lord repented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Do you realize that Moses reminded God of his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and the people of Israel? He said to God, you promised to give them this land. You covenanted to do this very thing. And God changed his mind. Moses understood something about the Lord. The story goes on. Moses goes down the mountain, as you remember, and Moses gets ticked off himself, throws down the tablets on the ground, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, shatters them, burns the calf, puts it into a drink and makes them all drink it. That's weird. Then he... um, Then Moses goes back up the mountain. He continues more than one time in the story from Exodus 32 to 34 to intercede and ask God's favor on the people. God basically in Exodus 33 says, you guys go, I'm going to stay here. Exodus 33, you see God's heart hurt. He says, you guys go, I'll give you the promised land like I said I would do it. But I myself, I'm not going to go up with you unless I consume you. What is God saying? I said I would do it, and I love you, and I will be faithful, but I'm not going to go. It's called boundaries. I, mean, I, don't, I can't trust you. I don't want to be with you because I don't want to kill you. <laughs> That's what he said. You can read it yourself. Moses won't have any of it. And so in Exodus 34, Moses comes before God again, and he cries out to God again because he understands something about God that many of us do not. And he cries out to God, and he says in verse 13, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace or favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you and that I might find favor or grace in your sight. And consider, this nation, Lord, is your people. Don't forget. God says, my presence will go with you. In verse 14, and I will give you rest. Verse 15, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. For how then will, will, will we be known that, you're, that, that we are your people and I have found favor in your sight, except that you go with us? So in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses again, I also will do this thing you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses cries out for favor and says, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't want the promised land without your presence. I want your presence. If you don't go up with me, I don't even know how to lead these people. How will anyone even know that we're your people? You need to go with us, please. I need your presence. God, if I found favor, you told me that I found favor in your sight. Give me this. And God says, okay. I'll go with you. And once again, he moves the heart of God. And God chooses to go with his people. 
And then Moses in verse 18 says, "Now, now, now show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me all that you are. And this is the classic story where God says, you can't see my face. But I'll have my goodness pass before you. See, I believe that Moses got something better than seeing the face of God. Because if you'll jump down in Exodus 34, it says in verse 5, listen to what happens. Verse 5. Now the Lord God descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so Moses bowed down. We have in Exodus 34, God telling us what God is like. See, when you proclaimed your name to somebody, you let them know who you are. The name represented the person. And God says, the Lord, the Lord God, he declares his name and proclaims it over Moses. Moses got something better than seeing the face of God. He got to hear who God is really like. And these words declare who God is. And God literally unveiled his heart to Moses. And Moses saw his glory. Maybe not with his physical eyes, although he did see his backside. He got something more than seeing with his physical eyes. He saw the heart of God. We've been learning intimacy, you could translate, or not translate, intimacy, we call it, into me you see. And when I tell you what I am like, you see into my heart. And God proclaims his name and lets Moses into the secret counsels of his heart. Let me show you what I am like. And he literally unveils his heart to Moses and, unf- and floods Moses with his glory by saying, I am slow to anger. Rich in love, rich in faithfulness. I'm a God of graciousness and compassion. I forgive sin and I judge iniquity. God was revealing. This is the core, that scripture is the core revelation of the character and the heart of God. And literally, his glory was unleashed on Moses at that moment. And forever, we can hear those words and know what God's heart is like. Then God literally reestablishes the covenant. Moses makes the, uh, actually Moses intercedes one more time. God says, yes, I will be, you know, your God, you will be my people. He redoes the covenant, redoes the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And God says, I'm going to do a great thing through you. And listen to what he repeats to Moses in verse 13 of chapter 34. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. Verse 14. For you shall worship no other God for for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot or prostitute with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And he goes on. This story in Exodus is framed 
by the jealousy of God. He says in the Ten Commandments, I'm a jealous God, no other God. He says after they've committed adultery and God has restored them and reestablished the covenant with them, basically meaning he's not going to destroy them, he's still going to keep his promise, and he's still going to be their covenant God. He once again says the same thing. No other covenants. I am your God, and my name is Jealous. His name is Jealous. It's who he is. He is a jealous God, and he says, therefore, no other gods. What's going in? What's going on in the heart of God? Deuteronomy 4 says this. We could throw that up there. Deuteronomy 4. Same context. Verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Make for your, and you make for yourselves carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden. Listen, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Literally, God is a consuming fire. There is a fire that burns in the heart of God. Why do you think that the fi- there was fire on the Mount Sinai? Why do you think Daniel literally saw rivers of fire coming from the throne room? Why do you think the Holy Spirit is like fire before the throne of God in Revelation 4 or in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles and then in the early disciples that he fell like fire. Because God is a, literally a consuming fire. God didn't like create humanity and go, hey, that fire thing, let's, let's borrow that metaphor. I'm just like a fire, you know, you guys understand fire. No, fire is the shadow. The creator who thought of fire in his head and made it on earth for a purpose is a consuming fire. Literally. My son actually asked me that one day. He was like, God, or Dad, Dad. sorry, he didn't mix that, mix that up. He said, Dad, he said, Dad, why did God create fire if fire's bad? Fire hurts people. Fire burns people. Why did God make fire? Wow, what an interesting question, isn't it? My deep theologian over here. I mean, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Why did God uh, uh, make anything? And you realize that some of the most powerful forces in the earth can be for good or for bad? Sex. God created sex. It's good. It can bind. It was meant to bind husband and wife together in an exclusive relationship. It's beautiful. It's mysterious. It's powerful. That in sex, people would become one flesh. One flesh in covenant. And yet, how destructive is sex in the world? Under, with lust and greed and abuse. Evil. Evil, isn't it? And yet, the problem isn't sex, is it? Fire, fire can burn. It destroys, doesn't it? Don't play with fire. And yet fire brings heat, warmth. In fact, I'm pretty sure the last time I checked, the only reason we exist is because there's this really big fire going on millions of miles away from us called the sun. I mean, it's an explosion happening, right? Fire. Bringing warmth, light, heat, life. God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. 
Do you realize, you don't get anything, here it is. Do you realize that the same fire that burns in the heart of God with desire for you is the same fire that burns against anything that hinders love? It's the same fire. He is a jealous God. It's who he is. God created you and God created me out of desire. Love desires. Love is not selfish, but desire is not selfish. Lust, greed, and all that other stuff is selfish. Desire outside of the kingdom of God is selfish. But love, there is pure desire. The definition of jealousy literally is a strong very strong emotion of desire for someone or something. And it can be used as a negative or a positive thing. In the flesh, in the broken and fallen world we live in, in us, we are jealous of people. We're jealous of things. We have envy. We have greed. We have lust. We covet. It's jealousy where we want someone else's possession that is not our own, right? Someone else's person, lust, that is not our own. We have no legal right. We have no covenantal right to that person. We have no legal right to that possession. And that is envy. That is greed. That is the jealousy that we would normally think of as wrong. But the heart of God is not filled with that, is he? He is jealous for. He is jealous for the good of everyone. He desires the good of everyone, and he is jealous for it. Why did he create the world? All right, we talk about this and lay the theological foundation in, 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 in Operation Saul Lives, you know, level one. So, you know, I'm just going to just assume you're flowing with me, and if you're not, you just go take that. He created you for his desire, not selfish desire, but for a relationship with himself. Love desires oneness, and love desires oneness only. God created you for himself, and he wants all of you, and he is jealous for all of you. He is jealous for oneness. He is jealous for an exclusive, covenantal relationship with you and him, and he wants nothing in the way. No idols, no sin, no lies. And I want you to understand something, that in the heart of God, there is judgment. In the heart of God, there is a hatred for wickedness, sin, lies, and deception. Why? Because he loves. People ask me that all the time, how can God be loving and judge? You're on the wrong side of the question. God is love. And so his judgments are love. Because the same fire, everyone say the same fire. The same fire that burns for you burns against anything that would keep you from him, keep you in lies, keep you in deception, keep you in bondage. He hates it. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He loves truth. He hates deception. He loves oneness. He hates idolatry. Why? Because he created you for himself. The jealous love of God that burns against sin is only a revelation of how much he loves you, how much he desires you, and all of you, and only you. This is why God hates religion. Because he only gets the outward part. 
and he never gets your heart. Listen to me, God wants you. He desires you. It's why he created you. Why did Jesus die? This is the motive behind creation. This is the motive behind the cross. Not what he did, but why he did it. He wants you. What drove drove Jesus to the cross and kept him nailed as the creator of the universe bore our sin in his body to deal with it? Why would God take away sin? Because he wants you more than he hates sin. Relationship is more important to God than even his own rules. You've got to understand that the same fire that burns in God against sin is the same fire that burns for you. Hey, listen. So, so, do this quickly. You can do a study of it. Jealousy, fire, anger, all related terms all throughout the scriptures. When people sin, when people break God's laws and they're unfaithful to the covenant with him, it arouses the fire inside of him. That's, why, that's the way the Bible describes jealous wrath. Proverbs chapter 6 says, jealousy is a husband's fury. Literally. Every, you cannot, okay, there are, legal, there are legal dynamics to the judgments of God. God's judgments are righteous against sin. Okay, many of us, you are secretly or openly offended at the judgments of God. You're like, think that he's like, mad, you know, you're mad at him because, you know, why would God judge or why would God do this, right? His judgments are absolutely righteous against sin. But you cannot understand the legal aspects even of judgment if you do not understand that everything is flowing out of this fire that's in his heart. That there is judgment in his heart because of the desires in his heart for you. So that when a person, okay, so, you, so when a person sins, it is, ba- it is unfaithfulness to God. They are grieving his heart, wronging him in that relationship, and so it awakens that jealous desire. This is why people who choose not to bow to Jesus and are under the wrath of God. It is literally fire. Hell is described as a fire that will continually torment for eternity. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about the eternal fire that will consume people for eternity. And that fire is coming out of the presence of God. I know you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's crazy. Yes, it is. And guess what? No one, God wants no one to go to hell. But God says, I delight, I never delight in the death of the wicked. I will that none should go to hell. That's why he sent his son. So there are people who are choosing to break the covenant, rebel against God, and align themselves with demons who are God's enemies. And they will choose to stick to that lie and stick to that idol and stick to that demon and stick to that sin and be under the wrath, the fire of God, and it will destroy them for eternity. But hold on. Because that same fire that burns against that sin, listen, it's not a different fire. 
it's the same fire that burns for you and for that person for their salvation. You, you, you cannot understand mercy without understanding judgment. And you cannot understand why, as we've been finding out, and you, you need to listen to these CDs if you haven't, mercy triumphs over judgment. In the heart of God, there are judgments in His heart, and there is mercy in His heart, and it's both love, and guess which wins? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because it is His desire to save people, make them one with Himself, that burns for humanity. This is why mercy triumphs over judgment. This is why mercy is a greater reality. And hello, go backwards to the story of Moses and God. This is why the same fire that was burning with wrath against God's people a minute ago burned for them when he repented. Why does God repent of doing harm? Why does God relent? Why is God patient? Why didn't he just destroy Adam and Eve? You know, why did he save the world through Noah? Why did he wait so long? Why did he send his only son to the cross and kill Jesus and put our sin on Jesus? Why would God take his own righteous wrath against sin and put it on himself? Because he's a consuming fire and a jealous God. You've got to understand his jealous love is what actually drove him to take our sin, which he would be just in destroying us for, and putting it on himself. Yeah, there are judgments in the heart of God. And, and yes, I deserve hell. We all deserve hell. Because we have wronged God and broken the covenant. And yet God loves you so much, desires you so much, that he would kill his son Jesus to give you mercy, so that his justice would be satisfied and he would rescue you. This is the crazy thing. What, what happens is his wrath is upon people and he literally rescues us from his own wrath because he desires you. I remember talking to a, a, a non-believer and, and they asked me, you know, how can, how can I be the enemy of God? How can I be God's enemy? The Bible says I'm God's enemy and yet how can he love me? I said, well, that's easy. I was like, oh, great question. That's brilliant. I said, that's easy though. He's not your enemy. You're his. We have made ourselves, people who don't know Jesus, have made themselves the enemy of God. They're under his burning, jealous wrath. And yet, he loves them more than even their own sin. And he burns with desire. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that he chose you before the creation of the world in Christ Jesus out of his good pleasure. He wanted to choose you before the creation of the world. That means you had nothing to do with it. Nothing! You couldn't have done anything good or bad. He chose you before the creation of the world so that his choice to love you and to die for you and to redeem you would be based on his character and the eternal nature of his love and have nothing to do with you in the sense of your, of your actions, good or bad. It has everything to do with you in the sense that he loves you. You're the object of his affection and desire. It has nothing to do with your actions or behavior, good or bad. In Romans chapter 5, it says that God loved you when you were a sinner and gave his son for you. He loved you and desired you when you were far from God. And his own love drove him to deal with his own wrath against you. His mercy is the greater reality. His mercy triumphs judgment. His mercy conquers his heart and causes him to relent 
and redeem and restore and heal. Turn with me to Song of Songs real quick. and We'll, re- we'll end with, with this. <clears throat> song of Songs is, a, is both a, a physical love song. If any of you have ever read it, it's a physical love song about a husband and a wife, marriage, oneness. But it's also a spiritual love song. And I won't go into why I'm going to say that, but it's about Christ and us. It's about Jesus and us and our oneness with him. And this is a great reality that I'm going to read to you right now, and then we'll apply it and we'll be done. But I want you to understand that God desires you. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you, and, it's, and his love for you is not based on your actions, good or bad. He desires you, and he has desired you from the beginning, from, from even the, before the world began. And he wants you. He created you for a relationship with himself. He created you out of desire, and he burns with desire. He burns with passionate affection for you. You could literally translate the word, je- the word jealousy, passionate for relationship, passionate for oneness with you, strong emotion that you his and all his this is how he feels about you and so his his burning fire burns against every lie that you would ever believe burns against any sin that you would ever struggle with but it burns for you okay this is why the cross this is why remember in jonah one minute god's saying i'm going to destroy jonah i mean i'm going to destroy nineveh and the next minute in the story god relents This is why in the story of Moses, you can have God so mad because people have just committed adultery. And yet Moses knew this about God. He knew the desire and the faithfulness of God. He knew that though your people are unfaithful, yet you are still faithful. Because you don't change. You burn with desire for your people with a faithful love. And he said, God, relent. And that's why God did. I'm telling you, this explains what I am teaching you right now is the core to help you to understand why God judges sin and yet why God would give his only son. And I'm telling you, this is your freedom. That you would understand that God desires you. Listen to Song of Songs chapter 8. And understand what's going on here. Verse, chapter 8, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. <clears throat> this is actually the, the bride talking to the bridegroom. It would be the church talking to Jesus in, in our context. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. It'd be scorned. It'd be like, you want to pay me? It'd be, it'd be like me trying to go and, and buy a Ferrari and be like, I'll give you 10 bucks. People sell everything for love. Shh, can't even come close because it's priceless. It's eternal. It's who God is. Did you hear what it said? That love, stronger than death. Jealousy, more unyielding, more cruel than the grave. Love, like a mighty flame. Literally, it means like the flame of God. Hmm, funny. Like a divine flame, like the fire that burns in his heart is the love that I'm talking about, love which is eternal, and no waters can quench this love. Listen, you cannot stop God from loving you. You cannot even put a dent in it. You can, uh, you can, you can sin and sin and sin and sin, and He will still desire you. 
You cannot quench the love of God. This is the strongest force in the universe. This is God we're talking about. And yet Christians have the haughty, prideful thought that they can change how God feels about them. Oh, I sin. God must not like me. God must not want to do that covenant promise that he made promise to me. He loves you with a fire and it cannot be quenched. Oh, but I did these bad things. Oh, yeah, he burns against those things that would hinder you from him. He created you for oneness with himself. And that fire that's burning towards you, all it is is to remove those things that are hindering your heart. That's all it is. So you've misunderstood the movement of God towards you. He's not burning against you. He gave his son for you. He loves you. He is burning for you. He is desiring you and all of you. And if there's anything in your heart that hinders oneness, he wants it out of the way because he wants all of you. And that is the true life for you. Why do you think it says deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me? Because anything of self that hinders that oneness, he wants to get rid of because he loves you. You cannot outsin the love of God. And what I want to challenge you to again and again and again is you have to, if you want to experience God's love, if you want His love to change the way, heal you and change you, you must make a distinction between you and Him. He is not like you. He is holy. Now, you can be holy like He's holy, but again, you are not like Him and He is not like you. So that means that when you feel bad, He doesn't. When you lose passion for God, He didn't. Remember 1 John 4? He loved you first. This is love. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you and gave his son. The definition of love, the manifestation of love is God giving his son for you. You, the definition of love is not you loving God. I don't really feel like I love God. Oh, I've really lost my passion. Oh, I'm really struggling with this sin. You must make a distinction that no matter how much you're struggling with sin, no matter how much you're mad at God or rejecting God, or no matter how far somebody's walked away from God, he loves them more could ever imagine he desires you so that when you're kind of waffling or tired or you just feel blah he doesn't he burns with a desire for you that is literally unquenchable he can't stop being himself his passion for you his desire for you is so intense and it never wavers and i couldn't even express how much he feels for you but it doesn't change so today, he burns with desire for you, and tomorrow, and the next day, into all eternity. And do you know that that burning passion and zeal for you is what will change you? He promises in his word to make, to heal the waywardness in our hearts. It's that zeal which will transform the nations. It says it's God's zeal which will actually literally establish his kingdom on the earth. It's his zeal, it's his jealousy, it's his desire. He will do this thing. You can't stop him. You can't. Because is he a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent? See, when he says he's going to do this, you can't change that. You can't change that. And so I want to challenge you to boast in God's love for you and not your love for God. I want to challenge you. You do not walk around looking at your weakness or your lack of love, or you do not walk around trying to convince God that you like him out of guilt and shame. Go, oh, I like you, God, I love you, I really do, I really do. Just tell him. 
I don't really feel passion for you. You know, I'm, not, I'm having a really hard time trusting you. Just tell him, I don't really love you that much. My love is weak. Great. Great. He already knows it. Boast in his love for you. You love me. You died for me. You desire me. Boast. Rejoice. Not in yourself, not in your own human actions, but in him. Yeah, that's my God. He desires me. He loves me. That's why he died for me. He wants me. You burn with a passion for me, whether I feel it or not. And when you make a distinction like that, and you stand on what the word says instead of how you feel, the Lord's going to heal you and change you. See, the problem in the church is not complacency. It's not apathy. It's not hypocrisy. The problem in the church is not that this world is so broken and fallen and evil and just, just pulling people away. Lust and greed, all filling consumerism in the world. That's not the problem. It's not the problem. Sin is not the problem. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I, you just, you just got If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God is inviting us into eternal pleasures. The joy of God, the burning affections of his heart. And we're playing around with lesser things. The problem in the church is not complacency or sin or anything. It's that we do not have a revelation of the burning desire of God in our hearts. Listen to me. You will never love God more than your revelation of his love for you. You will never desire God more than the revelation of his desire for you. What we need is is a revelation of his burning desire for us. And I'm telling you, it will awaken desire in you. It will awaken passion and desire in you. You will want holiness. You will want God. You will want purity. You will be satisfied in God. And you will have the passion in your heart to fulfill the ministry that he's called you to instead of being distracted or complacent or weary or whatever because he's an everlasting God, right? He does not grow weary. He burns with a passion with love for you and for the cause of Christ to go to the ends of the earth. We need a revelation of his desire. Amen? Stand with me.